Who is Rex Gannon? This is a great question. And actually, in looking back at all my distazapods and all my articles, I never really fully articulated the story of Rex Gannon and the story of manufacturing Rex Gannon. So I figure, hey, why the hell not? Let's jump in. Let's get the story behind Rex Gannon, the Indestructible Man. The story of Rex Gannon and really all of my old heroes and most of my contemporary uh, character creations, they all can be drawn back to an experience I had with a specific toy or an action figure. And in the act of playing with that figure, it sort of lent itself to a unique narrative or a unique characterization. Um, and that's really the genesis point for most of the stuff that I make that you guys buy. It is sort of influenced by my very early play patterns as a child. And Rex Gannon is a perfect example of this. So the, the kind of early concept and narrative of the archetype of Rex Gannon is as sort of all-American alpha male hero, uh, you know, having been born in 1980 and growing up with uh, Schwarzenegger's Rise and uh, Stallone and Rocky and Rambo and uh, even bad guys like Dolph Ludgren, there was always this idea of, you know, this very 80s idea of American uh, supremacy and the sort of steroided out alpha male and, you know, uh, these characters sort of incurring a lot of damage, but having the grit to continue on and complete the mission. And so this play pattern really entered into my brain and my mind with a single figure um, that was from a small company called Diamond Toy Makers, who are no longer around. And they basically created a kind of subpar 5.5 inch action figure of John Matrix from Commando, the, the Schwarzenegger film. And I had that figure and I lost all the parts immediately. It was unique because it had sort of cloth pants and a removable flak jacket. And all other toys at that point that I had really just had sort of sculpted clothing. There, weren't, there wasn't any customization or changeability there. So this was a, a favorite of mine. One, because it had that, you know, swappable action where I could sort of attempt to put him into new clothing and two because it was Schwarzenegger who to me was just the the zeitgeist the the absolute apex of you know what a man should be at the time and so this commando figure went everywhere with me and he was always sort of on the run he was always patching up his wounds he was always you know uh he would be sort of encircled by Hasbro cops figures who were trying to arrest him he also sort of became a stand-in for every Schwarzenegger movie. I remember specifically like recreating some of the scenes from Total Recall using those Hasbro cop figures as the enforcers and having, obviously, Schwarzenegger play uh, the Quaid character from that film. So he, he sort of became a stand-in for all these action movies that were going on at the time. And um, that was kind of the, you know, the vaulting storyline of, of that character, just always being chased down by thugs and mercenaries, always being shot at and uh, injured and, 
he would just he would constantly be changing outfits and picking up other people's weapons and you know just constantly on the move constantly in combat and uh i i distinctly remember fashioning clothing for him out of electrical tape um because you know i i sort of lost all the pieces and he was somewhat nude he was wearing combat boots and uh you know black uh black sort of bikini underwear and so I would just fashion new clothing out of anything I could find and um also kind of pick up weapons from other things I remember I took the warlord sword from Remco and I wrapped it with this sort of cardboard foil paper so it looked like this big scimitar that was sort of uh shiny uh I remember he also another favorite accessory of his was the 12-inch Kenner Luke Skywalker lightsaber from the 70s, which kind of fit perfectly in his hand. So he was this, uh, you know, just this master of every discipline of fighting who liked melee weapons. He liked regular projectile weapons. And the world was sort of closing in on him at all times. And that archetype was really expressed many times over in my creative pursuits, uh, but it all sort of draws back to that specific scenario. Moving ahead a few years, uh, it kind of obviously became not such a great look to be playing with toys as I entered into my teens. The commando figure was sort of long gone just by the trials and tribulations of transitioning into, uh, you know, somewhat of an adult. Um, but this idea of this, this constant, uh, this superhero, this action hero under constant threat, uh, came back bubbling to the surface with some of the GI Joe twelve inch figures that came out. Probably, if I'm just guessing, probably around ninety five, ninety six, maybe even a little later than that. They started to do very affordable cloth clothing 12-inch figures on a single blister card. And they were a little more expensive than, you know, normal action figures, but not so expensive that I couldn't afford one. And uh, I got one, and it sort of brought back this idea of this action toy that had cloth components, that had a lot of weaponry that would sort of be recycled and picked up. And... Just this, uh, you know, this character that would become a punching bag <laughs> for all these external forces that wanted to do him harm. And it was through that sort of renaissance of 12-inch G.I. Joe guys that um, I got into doing a little bit of customization and kit bashing. I would sort of paint on a black eye. I would take little medical tape and, you know, dot them with a red pen and put them on these characters and, uh, you know, make it fashion a cast for them. I would draw tattoos with magic marker. And it started to, to kind of push my creativity into taking this, this sort of archetype of a hero and working him into a more contemporary setting in the, you know, late 90s. Um, and sort of building the stories around that. And I, I think I've posted some of my first sketchbooks from high school or even college when I was really starting to refine Rex Gannon into, you know, taking him from being a sort of Schwarzenegger clone 
into being a a unique character, or at least a character that was sort of more more of my creation. And, uh, you know, I guess I can post below some... Uh, I'll post some images of the very early uh, drawings of Rex Cannon. This will kind of give you an idea. I, I'm actually looking at my bookshelf right now. I know which sketchbook they're in, so I'm just going to pull this, and I'm going to snap some photos and make sure that those are posted when this podcast goes live. If you're catching this just on Anchor, you're going to need to go to the Patreon and check the comment section to sort of see these uh, corresponding images. So it's the late 90s, and I'm sort of building the world of Rex Gannon, and I'm taking that idea of this is a, a guy who he gets beat up a lot, and he gets back up and he keeps swinging. I think another influential media for me at this time was Die Hard 3, um, which I absolutely love. I haven't watched it in a few years, but when that came out, I was just sort of old enough to watch rated R films, and uh, although that might be PG-13 now that I think about it. But anyway, I loved the character of John McClane and I, because I loved how much he got the shit kicked out of him. You know, it was, as wacky as those movies are, and unbelievable at times, which, I mean, the first three are not, are nowhere, you know, as uncredible as the uh, the sort of later entries into the film, which in which he's just literally a Marvel superhero or a CGI video game character. Um, John McClane's appeal is that he's more or less an everyman, and he gets the absolute crap beat out of him. And you see the toll it takes on his body as the films progress, which is kind of, you know, something that's not always seen in movies. I think Marvel films in particular do a terrible job of having real stakes and real damage to their characters. And and I think it it serves to their detriment because it makes them weightless and it, it just, it doesn't, it warps your reality. But John McClane at the end of Die Hard 3 you can see every point of injury he's had, and it corresponds to a scene and a and a sort of tight spot he had to overcome through his own strength and ingenuity. And I think that's so captivating. And I've tried to infuse stakes into everything I do, whether it's, you know, that Lime is dead in the Knights of the Slice and, you know, there hasn't been a sort of cheap resurrection of him. You know, I, I always wanted to have real-world stakes and injury to the characters that I write. And so in the late 90s, as I was formulating the world of Rex Cannon, I figured if he was indestructible, or at least named the indestructible man, it sort of lent itself as a clever story device. And in the 90s iteration of Rex, there was no explanation for his indestructible nature. He was, it was always sort of, there's, you know, I, I put together all these guides of all my characters and all these like Marvel Update 89 style breakdowns. And Rex's indestructibility was never really addressed in a big way. There were a couple, you know, a couple panels of comics I wrote where, that were sort of jettisoned story ideas where he was abducted by aliens and sort of made to be indestructible or, you know, um, I, I don't think I went as far as like a radioactive spider bite, but just kind of trying on for a fit, aping all the other cliches of, you know, superheroes and powers like that. 
And uh, eventually I just decided he's not actually indestructible. He's just called the indestructible man because he gets into so much trouble, but still kind of crawls out at the end of the day. And I think, you know, that's John McClane for sure in the first three Die Hard films. He's, he seems indestructible, but he's just kind of getting by, by the, you know, by the skin of his teeth. Um, so as the nineties closed out, I, I, you know, I went to college and I started to kind of develop these story ideas along a serious, uh, pitch deck type angle as I was being taught in school. I really treated my properties as if they were a Disney or Pixar film. And I really was fascinated and loved doing the pitching of this and the pull together of assets and the putting together what I thought would be a style guide and doing the character designs. And so I treated all these as very real stories to me that sort of were dignified of the professional Hollywood treatment. Um, in doing that, I, I kind of really wanted Rex Cannon to you know, have some sort of life beyond just me. This was probably pre, this was definitely pre-Facebook, pre-YouTube, um, probably a little bit before DeviantArt. So there wasn't a great way to kind of share your story ideas or things like that. So I didn't really have a vessel to share Rex Cannon with anybody else. Um, but that would all change probably about five years later or so when I was slowly edging my way into the toy industry, and I met the guys from Plan B Toys. And uh, these guys used to work at Resource, which is a company worthy of researching because it was really fantastic and unique in in and of itself in the late 90s. And it quickly folded, and three of the principals, um, Jay, Chris, and Tony, went off to start Plan B Toys. And uh, Resource created a toy line I, I loved very much at the time. I still do love the Special Forces line. And it was generic soldiers in the six-inch scale with really great articulation for the time. And I loved this line. They were not so easy to track down, but I did build up a sizable, you know, sort of squad with them. I'm still kicking myself for actually selling these at some point because they're they're really fantastic figures. Quick side note, I have tried many times to locate the tooling for Plan B's Special Forces, and it has not come to fruition. I've even spoken to the factory that used to make them. Um, they're just as... They're gone. They don't exist. It's really terrible. Uh, Plan B did sort of give me a blessing to seek out the tooling, and if I found it, we could work out a deal, and I could resurrect the line. But sadly... That is not going to be. And uh, before you ask, it's not something I'm interested in following up with when I'm in China in the very near future. So uh, I think it's best we just uh, leave that great line as dead. But in any case, I love the Plan B line. And I used to sort of make my own characters. I used to swap the heads and do a little bit of customization to come up with my own characters. And Rex Gannon was a perfect fit for this line. And then when... I met the guys from Plan B at my very first San Diego Comic-Con, and we had a mutual friend, and I got to talk to these guys. I was sort of bold enough to suggest I would like to do my own accessory kit for their toy line. And the first pitch for Rex Gannon was it was just going to be a matchbox 
sized package. It was going to contain a Rex Cannon head, a Colt 1911, and some new hands. And that was it. That was that was all of my aspirations. For whatever reason, the Plan B guys were really great in humoring my crazy ideas. And they actually were willing to manufacture for me uh, this head kit. So people can convert their Special Forces toys into Rex Cannon. Um, the problem was they were sort of switching factories and they could only do Rex Cannon with their upcoming World War II line. And now Rex Cannon was kind of a contemporary slash quasi-futuristic character. He was not a sort of retro um, World War II guy. So it wasn't exactly a perfect fit, but... I still wanted to go down this rabbit hole and, and create this little accessory pack, and I was prepared to beg, borrow, and steal and sell my collection to sort of make it happen. Uh, Deal Betts, our, our mutual friend that introduced me to Plan B, he had this great idea. He said, look, if you're going to spend the time to manufacture this and to put your money up, you might as well buy an entire figure because only a small amount of their audience is going to buy something that requires something else to use. You should just sell the complete package. Even if it costs you more, it's going to be a better experience. And I got to tell you, Deal was 100% right. And that logic I still adhere to to this day. This is why I get a lot of requests for different head packs, for additional accessory kits, and I typically would rather tool an entirely new figure than do something that's piecemeal. Now, that being said, of course, we're going to do more accessory kits and things like that in the future. But generally speaking, it is more compelling and you're going to sell more units of an entire enclosed experience rather than something that requires something else. And so I do want to thank Deal for that piece of input. So then I pitched the idea of a full figure to Plan B and they agree and we get costing done. They match me with one of their sculptors who sculpts a Rex head. Uh, I did end up using a German body for Rex Gannon. I just felt like the uniform uh, maybe could be could appear to be a little more contemporary than what some of the Allied figures were using. Um, I also last minute opted to make Rex's skin tone much more subdued to keep it in line with the other figures that Plan B were making in the World War II series. This is a decision I still sort of regret to this day. I should have just had the bright peach type color that I like to use in all of the Caucasian figures I have, which is a direct throwback to, you know, all the skin tones, all the peach or Caucasian skin tones of, uh, of the sort of LJN figures or, you know, all the sort of 80s lines. So uh, we did the deal. The goods got shipped to me. Well, partially the goods got shipped to me. The The other part was I was still living with my mother at the time. I had a very small room, and I was trying to launch, do this massive online launch for this Rex Gannon figure with just having a bedroom to utilize for everything. So they sent me a couple cases. They They agreed to hold the majority of these figures at their warehouse. We're talking 3,000 figures, so this was a big sort of expense, and this was a full pallet worth of product. So I got a couple uh, got a couple cases, 
sold a case to Kid Robot. That's great. This is good business. I think I might have sold some to Toy Tokyo. I can't remember. Um, And then I sort of, uh, you know, I took out an ad in Toy Marts magazine, which still existed at the time. And uh, I just sort of like tried to promote it, you know, just one post at a time. I, I, uh, at the time, you know, back then, Raving Toy Maniac, RTM, was an influential hub for, you know, uh, adult action figure collectors. So I did a lot of grinding there. Um, but the reality is, I sold a handful of figures. I had three, th- I was on the line for 3,000 of them. I, I don't even think I sold a hundred. I went around setting up at every show possible selling Rex Gannons. I busted my ass and nobody responded because one, technology was not there to support an independent toy line. And two, this is a nothing thing. You know, my idea at the time was not worthy of anybody else's appreciation. Um, It was just sort of sheer ego that I thought you know, other people would sort of respond to this. To complicate matters further, I was so sure of my future as an online independent toy salesman who only created his own stuff that I had left my uh, job in the toy industry to just focus on this and to just sort of do a touring art show called Subcultures, which is going to be a very long distazapod in the future covering that. But I gave it all up. I walked away from a job And I spent a year trying to make Rex work and trying to make my art work. And it was soul-crushing because it didn't work. And eventually I I found Jazzwares and I took a job there. And I left Rex behind and I swore off being a starving artist and I swore off my own creations. And I decided, you know, around age 23 or 24, I was just going to dive into other people's work and I was going to just take what I had learned in this small action figure project and apply it to other people's brands and try to make them money and try to make myself money. And so Rex lay dead and the inventory was rotting in a warehouse in Ohio. Nobody was buying any of them. And that was kind of, uh, the end of chapter one for Rex, but he would come back around. Again, about another five years later, we're probably talking eh, 2010 or so, uh, I started to make a little bit of money in film licensing and entertainment licensing and be able to start fleshing out some of my old ideas. And I felt like comic books were going to be the way to do it. So I basically, now that I was making a little bit of money and had a little bit of spare cash, I would start hiring artists to kind of work and interpret my ideas and help give me some visual assets that I could share with people. And really my goal was just to do a couple Ashcan comics and work my way up from there. Um, This was around the time I started experimenting with doing some resin figures and doing some small run custom painted Klyos figures because... Well, now was sort of coming out of the scene in, in a, you know, a small but dedicated way. And uh, I worked with a lot of good artists. I worked with a lot of shitty artists. And I produced Malignant Bullet, which was really the next phase of Rex Gannon. And 
Instead of just being Rex Gannon, it focused on Rex and his buddy Vaughn Von Braun. They were sort of mercenaries for hire. They were technically battlefield custodians. So they would go into a war zone after there was a skirmish, and they would recover any gear or any vehicles or anything that was left behind in the haste of battle. And they would be paid handsomely for this work. It was not direct combat work, but it was sort of a needed uh, private military corporation function. And um, I partnered with an old childhood friend of mine, Matt Bandel, who you guys may know from being the artist behind Liguana. Uh, Matt had gone off and served in the Marines in uh, First Recon. He had really lived the life of Rex Gannon, and I, f- I, one, I always liked drawing and creating stories with Matt when we were kids, and uh, I enjoyed tremendously what he brought to the table in the specificity and technicality that we were able to speak to with his work. And um, we put together three volumes of, I mean, really just three issues, not really volumes, of uh, the Malignant Malignant Bullet story, which still, to this day, has not been completely finished, and maybe something, you know, at some point I'd like to do. But, uh, yeah, we got a comic done. Uh, I tried to kind of push... I, I used print-on-demand to get Malignant Bullet done, aside from doing a couple hard copies, you know, small runs of, like, 50 pieces. But again, you know, nobody really bought any of them. I brought them to shows. I, I went to MoCA in New York. I set up tables every now and then, but still just kind of a snail's pace um, for all of this, all of the, uh, for the reaction of, of Rex at at retail and with customers. So again, you know, nobody really bit. And I had to just kind of let it go. And I became more focused on just corporate work and working with Hollywood and making money and doing the things I thought I was supposed to do. And, you know, less of a focus on my own creative stuff and less of a focus on these projects. And, uh, you know, that kind of... That was a small blip in Rex's life, and he was kind of quickly put back underground and uh, just kind of languished there. So fast forward again to uh, just a few years ago, and at this point, Rex has sort of been launched as an action figure line, and there's just about 2,800 maybe even more, <laughs> Rex Gannon's rotting somewhere, missing at this point in some warehouse in Ohio, who knows. And um, I have finally sort of built something that resonates with people, and that's Night of the Slice and Toy Pizza. And our numbers are small, but we're moving product, and people seem to be engaged and interested, and we're starting to formulate the Riff Killer, which would be our third figure for Knights of the Slice. And it was always the idea that there would be a human head, finally. We, we could run a human head with the Rift Killer body, and that could be applied to the classic knight and the vector jump to give a little more personality and a little more humanity to the characters. Um, Doughty, Matt Doughty, you know, the creator of O'Neill and Glyos, always loved Rex Cannon. He bought all the comics. He bought the original figure. He knew that that was my sort of key character that 
needed to happen. So pretty early on, we were able to start designing it as just kind of a standard male head, but also with a little bit of rec scan and tweaks so that it could serve as a generic sort of guy, or it could be rec scanning. And so we slowly but surely created the third iteration of Rex Gannon, which we all now know today. Somewhere along the line, uh, Plan B reached out. Now, the guys from Plan B have disbanded. Um, the two brothers have gone off to be award-winning sort of creative directors for a major clothing company. They've left toys far behind. But they found the palette of Rex Gannon figures. And they told me if I had just paid for the shipping, they would send it to me. And so uh, just before we launched the Rift Killer, I was gifted this amazing find of a couple thousand Rex Gannon pieces still in working order and still kind of really fucking cool figures. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we got to launch the Rift Killer and the Rex Gannon alongside this old inventory. And it was a very meaningful sort of homecoming for Rex, who, you know, for more than 15 years never had an audience, never had anybody care about him. So it was very heartwarming. And uh, alongside that resurrection of Rex, I obviously tooled my first accessory kit, which included two new heads that would work on the old six-inch Rex body, which, through coincidence, kind of fit really well on the Thousand Toys one uh, twelfth synthetic human, just in a happy accident. So where we stand today is that Rex has sort of made a successful appearance. And and I think people seem to like him. The, the fact that, you know, when I run a poll or I talk about us doing a design of figure, people actually mention Rex Gannon as a possibility. That's insane because he's been ignored <laughs> for most of his life. And, uh, it makes me endlessly happy. Um, I think we do... Uh, we will have another Rex Gannon probably in 2019. I don't know what form he will take at this point. But with... Uh, you know, with Gavin Mackey's comics and, and us giving Rex the title of... Um, the leader... the the sort of interim leader of Knights of the Slice, you know, I think he's a character that's going to keep coming up more and more. And uh, I don't know what his next iteration would be. I'd love to hear from you guys in the comments if you have a really great idea of what you think we should do for his next edition. But um, Rex is far from dead now. I don't have any aspirations to lock him back in a coffin and ship them out. I want to keep uh, revisiting it. I would love to get Rex's sidekick Vaughn made at some point in the near future, which I hope we can do. And uh, other than that, I think the story of Rex Gannon is really a story of gratitude and a story of patience. Um, as a creative type, your goal is really to endure being ignored, sometimes for decades. I think that is your main task. You have to keep at your craft and be content to be ignored for a decade or so. And then if you've kept at it and you've kept pushing the envelope and keep 
kept improving your skill, I, I you know, I think you will you'll finally have some level of acceptance. And uh, Rex Cannon is proof positive of that. And so I thank you guys for the Rex Cannon support and all the Knights of the Slice support. And I especially thank you for the Patreon support because it is, we are killing it and we're moving so much closer to our goal of 100 patrons. And when we do that, we're going to design a figure and it's going to be amazing. So uh, the only thing left to say, my friends, is pizza out.